Please be seated. Here we go. We come to our text for today, John chapter 11. Just the first few verses of John chapter 11, then skipping forward to verse 38 through uh, 44. Hear the word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Uh, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with with, uh, with ointment and wiped her, uh, I'm sorry, let's start that again. That's better. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then skipping down to verse 38. Then Jesus moved deeply again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account, this inspired account of our Savior in this situation. Father, we know that you have written this for our profit and for your glory. We pray that you glorify yourself in the growth and understanding and Christ-likeness that you give us in it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an age of show-offs, and we are them. The internet and social media let everyone be a national show-off. Pictures, videos, comments, likes, and so forth. Uh, are people displaying what they think is their glory. And most of it is just a grasping for recognition of one's value, one's importance. We are all convinced that we have value, and we do. And we're all convinced that we are important. And it's all a way of saying, look at me. Even just briefly, I too am important. But this is all ridiculous 
because God, right, the creator of all things, the redeemer of sinners, the one from whom and through whom and for whom are all things, we do this in his presence. And anyone's glory and importance only comes, therefore, in Christ and from Christ. In this great miracle, as in all the miracles, Christ shows us in this age when everyone is grasping at snippets and crumbs of glory, he shows us his glory. Verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so it's given so that we will believe, verse 42, move closer to the end. Father, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Believe what? That we may believe that God sent Jesus. Sent him for what? To accomplish the gospel of salvation that we see here pictured. The grace of the gospel in God's gift-giving of Christ to bring us to life. And so we see here the grace of God. We see the sovereign grace of God in this miracle. We see the irresistible grace of God in this miracle. And we see the undeserved grace of God in this miracle. The sovereign grace. Jesus stands before the tomb occupied only by a corpse. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus does not invite Lazarus to cooperate. There's no action required from Lazarus. And how could he? The dead cannot cooperate in their own resurrection, as they cannot cooperate in anything. Some other miracles ask people to to do something. So, So there's blind Bartimaeus crying out to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. Or Jesus will tell somebody, now go and wash in this pool of Siloam. You do this or that or something like this. There, the stories, the parables, the miracles are making a different point. Uh, You have to seek the Lord. You have to repent of your sin. You have to call on the name of the Lord. But here, the point is Christ's sovereignty in your salvation, in all things. His sovereignty even in your repentance. His sovereignty even in your calling on his name. His sovereignty in all things from beginning to end. So Ephesians chapter 2, you know this verse. That before God saved you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That is, spiritually, you were as helpless in sin as a corpse is in the coffin. And then what do we read in in Ephesians chapter 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Paul goes into it and says, But God, but God, who so loved us in Christ, gave his Son for us, out of his great love for us. God must do it all. Why? Because we're dead before Christ, dead in our trespasses. So John chapter 6, John chapter 6, 44. No one, says Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
So the good news in this story is he is completely sovereign in your salvation from beginning to end. Children, children, do you know what sovereign means? Sovereign means the power to control everything, being in charge. So your mom and dad are sovereign in your home. They're in charge. And the government is sovereign in our country. It has power to control things. But in a a greater sense, God is sovereign over all things in the universe. He gets what he wants, and he does what he wants. He's sovereign. Don't be offended in this, that God does so much, namely everything, and you do so little, namely nothing. When you have troubles, brothers and sisters, do you not pray to God? And when you pray to God, is your confidence not that he can do all things and that he can move heaven and earth, whether it is to save someone from death or to change a traffic light so you get where you want to go on time? He can do this. He can change heaven and earth from before. From before the time, before he created the earth, he can arrange everything so that in response to your prayer, things work out in a certain way because he's God and he's sovereign and we expect him to be sovereign in this way. Well, your salvation and your perseverance in salvation is a much bigger problem than you could ever pray for, the other things that you pray for. To the extent that it relies on you, to the extent there's my part as opposed to God's part, there's a weak link in the chain, and it can fail. And if you know yourself, you know it will fail. But if God is totally sovereign, you know the job is done, and you are secure. But God's sovereignty, of course, does not excuse us to do nothing. Though God is sovereign at every stage of salvation, he calls his people to repent, right? With an exclamation mark in the text. It means it's in the imperative voice. It means you repent. You have to do this. Do it. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel. Follow. Do what what I say, he says. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. Nonetheless, we can look back on our obedience and we can see that God's sovereignty was all through it. And we can say, not I, but Christ who lives in me. So this grace is sovereign. Praise God, it is sovereign. It is also irresistible. Note the commanding tone of that command. Lazarus, come out. Not Lazarus, please come out. Not, Lazarus, would you like to come out? Would you like to come out now? Lazarus, are you ready to come out? No, no, no. Lazarus, come out. And he expects the corpse to respond. This is the marvelous thing. And the corpse does, because he's no longer a corpse. Lazarus has no choice in whether he wants to be alive anymore then the light has a choice when God says, let there be light in the beginning, and there was light. The light is then just light because God said, let there be light, and so there is. 
and so to hear with Lazarus when the light shines. You know light. You turn on the light. And there isn't a, well, the, the darkness has to flush itself out. The light comes on. The darkness leaves. It has no choice. There's no, there's no competition. Uh, light is irresistible. And so, too, once Jesus has spoken, the darkness cannot hold Lazarus. Again, look at the passage, verse 44. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. The parallel with let there be light and there was light is clear. Especially, where are we? We're in John's gospel. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What other book begins in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. It's the same thing. This is what's going on. Uh, This is a creation event. Redemption is not a new deal that God pitches to us And we consider our alternatives, and we agree to the deal, and it's sealed. No, redemption is recreation. And so Paul says, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you are in Christ, if you are alive in the Savior, it is because God has made you a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. God created the world by speaking a word. Let there be light. Let there be. Let there be. And Jesus, who is the word of God, by a word, come out, recreates Lazarus' body and reunites him with it. In bringing him to life, Christ recreates Lazarus. Creation, brothers and sisters, is something God does. God and God alone. When God creates, it is done and it is finished. It is complete and it is good. He has created. Consider the man born blind. We have all kinds of people who come to Jesus uh, in need, uh, who, are, who are lame, who have an issue of blood, who have... Who have uh, uh, all sorts of things. But there's one man who is born blind. His eyes, as it were, were stillborn. And Jesus recreates him. It's not like there were eyes there that once worked and he just has to connect by a miracle, reconnect something that has gone unconnected. They were dead from the start. They have never been eyes. They've looked like eyes, but they're not eyes. They were stillborn, and so Jesus had to recreate them. Brothers and sisters, we all came into this world stillborn, as spiritually responsive to God as Lazarus in the tomb was to his weeping relatives. But by his word of grace, Jesus made you alive in him and responsive to him, and responsive to him because he made you alive. What Christ does for you is just the reverse of what he does here for Lazarus. Lazarus had a living spirit, but a dead body. 
and Christ raised his body and made him whole. A sinner has a living body, but a dead spirit. And Christ gives you life in your spirit and makes you whole so that you can see sin as sin and God's glory in Christ. That's what it means to be alive, to be made alive in Christ. To, though I was dead, now I am alive. What does that mean? Now you see your sin as sin. Now you see the glory of God in Christ. And you might ask, but after Jesus makes Lazarus alive again, doesn't Lazarus then have a choice at that point? Doesn't he choose then either to walk with the living or lie with the dead? And isn't that that the decision for Christ? No? But wait. Let's say you have a loved one who is living in open and scandalous sin, and your heart obviously is heavy for him, for this person. And, 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 you, and you, you pray, Lord, open his eyes. Open his eyes, Lord. And then God does open his eyes. You don't then pray, thank you, Lord, for opening his eyes. Now, cause him to see his sin as sin and, and, and leave it. No, that's what opening his eyes means. Uh, open his eyes to the evil of his ways and and the beauty of holiness and the goodness of following you. That's what opening his eyes means. Once the eyes are open, of course you see these things the way they are. And of course you then change your ways. That's the repentance. Once Lazarus is alive, his leaving the tomb is not a real choice. Of course there's an act of the will there, but what else would he do? Imagine children on Christmas morning. They are asleep. They are unresponsive to the world. Thank goodness. <laughs> and, then, and then they wake up. It's Christmas morning. Do they then think, I have a choice now before me. Will I lie around for another three hours? Or will I race downstairs to the Christmas tree? Or to the stockings? Or to jump up outside mom and dad's room saying, Get up, get up, get up! It's not a choice. What else would they do? It's Christmas morning. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Having been made alive, you see... What else would you do? That's what living people do. They find themselves in the tomb and, what am I doing here? And they go out. If you've been ill and you've had no appetite, you know what that's like. It's like your appetite is dead. It is dead to food. There's food there which normally would bring a response from you, now brings no response. In fact, a negative response. Oh, take it away, I'm going to be sick. Just the sight of it. Your, your appetite is dead. Mm-hmm. And then you get better. Your appetite returns. It, as it were, comes to life. And food is put before you. Like real food, not like boiled Brussels sprouts. But even then, if you were really hungry, you'd eat those, right? Food is brought before What else are you going to do? You're going to eat. Well, I wonder what he will choose. Of course you're going to choose to eat. Your appetite is alive. There is food. You partake. And if God brings you to life and sets Christ before you, will you choose him? It's not a question. It's what living souls do. 
In other words, the grace that gave you life is the same grace by which you choose Christ. It's all grace from beginning to end. And so the good news, brothers and sisters, because God's saving grace is sovereign and it's irresistible, the good news is that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, including your sinful will. Oh, I choose so many stupid things. Oh, I make so many bad decisions. Oh, I, uh, and, and, and I could kick myself, but I've chosen Christ. What if I unchoose him? You won't, because you chose him by grace, and you'll persevere by grace. It's all grace. God is greater than your sin. God, who defeated sin on the cross, is greater than the sin in your life. Let me say that again. God, who defeated sin on the cross, is greater than the sin in your life. And that's your confidence. So God's grace that saves you from sin, death, and hell is not only the sovereign and irresistible grace, it is also, third, undeserved grace. What has Lazarus done to deserve such a gift? Hmm? Well, you might say, well, he was Jesus' friend. Okay, he was Jesus' friend. But uh, even as a friend, how lovable could he have been, given what we're told, we see all too confirmed in our lives, John, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. How many? All have become worthless. That all means all there. It's you, it's me, it's everyone who ever drew breath except for, for Jesus himself. All have become worthless. No one, and underscores it, repeats it, no one does good, not even one. And Jesus, who knows what is in a man, knew that also of Lazarus. So was it because Lazarus was loved so lovable that he earned the special favor from Christ? No. And yet Jesus loved him. That takes extraordinarily gracious love. But that's what love is. All love is despite the beloved, all true love. Because nothing is as lovable as the love we give it. Sometimes because we're kind of deceived. But God is not deceived. God loves us. It's a gracious love. He loves us despite ourselves. It, that's what makes it gracious. Even so, even so, even so, here, the picture, as a picture of you and me, the picture is of dead Lazarus. Dead Lazarus. Lazarus in the tomb is a picture of man in his need of Christ. Lazarus in the tomb is a picture of human beings in need of life. So the question is, not what did Lazarus in his life do to merit the gift of this favor from God, but what did dead Lazarus do to merit, to deserve this gift? what could he do? He's dead. Nothing. 
so too you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was nothing you could do and nothing you could offer God. Again, Romans 8. If you haven't read Romans 8, you need to do that this afternoon. Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. And when when Paul says the mind set on the flesh, he's talking about unredeemed, unregenerate human beings. The mind set on the flesh, set on the flesh, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you know the song 16 Tons? I believe it was Tennessee Ernie Ford. It wasn't yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Well, just because you're young doesn't mean you haven't heard of it. My own son, Alexander, texted me from St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands to ask me what that song was, right? And he, he didn't get me, but, but he remembered it himself, 16 Tons. And, and the picture there in that song is of a, uh, somebody who works for a mining company in a company town. Now, you know what a company town is? A company town means there's one industry, one employer, and that, it, and that employer owns all the housing. How nice they provide housing. And they own the general store, which provides everything people need, the, you know, whatever clothing, uh, whatever food, whatever they need. And, and the company owns everything. It's the company store. How nice. They provide a store as well. Well, it's not so nice. Because they own everything and the job, they set the rent at such a level and set the prices of things. It's a monopoly. There's nowhere else to go. There's no Walmart. There's no Amazon. They set the prices also at such a level that they know that what they pay you will not cover everything you need. But don't worry. We'll give you credit. Your credit's good here. Oh, how nice. No, they keep you in debt. So everyone is in debt to the company and can't leave. And so the song goes, you load 16 tons of coal. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. That, brothers and sisters, is the picture of human beings in sin. No matter how much we try, well, I'll try and pay off my debt of sin. I'll I'll, I'll double my efforts to lead a really good life. Except, as Isaiah told us, all, even our righteousnesses, are as filthy rags. And with every good deed we offer to God, we go deeper in debt in sin. You cannot deserve God's love. You can only receive it as a gift by His grace. God's power in your salvation is a testimony to your weakness in your sin. If you had any chance, if you had any choice on your own, you would have rejected Him. Why? Because you're dead in sin. That's what dead in sin means. Unresponsive to God. You don't see his loveliness. You don't see his goodness. You see goodness where it doesn't exist, and you go there. That's dead in sin. It's what dead in sin means. So his grace 
to you is undeserved. Again, that's what grace means. It means undeserved. When a student uh, uh, you know, thanks me for my gr- the grace I showed in uh, uh, oh, extending a deadline or not bringing a consequence, which I was perfectly free to bring, um, when the student says, thank you for the grace and your grace in that matter, that means I deserved that and you didn't give me what I deserved. Uh, when another student says, uh, when, I, when I let the consequences fall <laughs> where they're supposed to fall, it says, what about grace? <laughs> Speaking as though grace isn't somehow an entitlement. I say, you don't understand grace, right? Grace means undeserved. And so also, if you are to be saved, God must give grace this undeserved gift, just as he must be sovereign in that grace. And the grace must be irresistible. So God has given us this message to encourage us. The message here is encouraging. If you earned his gift of life in Christ, then you can unearn it. If you earned your peace with God, then you can also unearn it and lose it. We have all ruined relationships. You don't have to raise your hand. We have all ruined, because all means all here. We have all ruined, except maybe the tots, ruined relationships and lost some sort of relationship or another. We have all turned some sort of precious peace into hostility. But if God gives you life and peace by grace, then you have it, and you can never lose it. Otherwise, it would not be peace. What does Jesus say? Peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. He's the prince of peace. It is the gospel of peace. Peace not only between you and God, but peace also in the security of that peace. That, brothers and sisters, is encouraging. But God's message here is also humbling. No matter who you are, you depend wholly on God. Everyone from the homeless, you pass by in the city in Penn Station, to the rich and successful of whom you get a glimpse maybe just on television, are wholly dependent on God. Dead is dead. When the homeless are dead, they are dead. When the rich and famous are dead, they are dead. And we are all dead in our trespasses and sins aside from the gracious work of God. I look at my old house. The older your house is, the more fix-it job it it has. And I I see fix-it jobs, and I think, there are some men who look at these things, i got to do that. And they just do it, right? And no matter what it is, whether it's the roof or the plumbing or the electricity or changing out a toilet or whatever it is, they just do it. Some things I can do. With some things, I need help. And with others, I am completely unable and I need to pay someone. But for eternal life, everyone is helpless before God. Everyone is a bumbler and a wreck. That is humbling. This message is not only encouraging and humbling, it is also liberating. 
it is so difficult to get your eyes off yourself. And that's not because any one of us is so amazing or exceptionally beautiful. It's because we are us. We dwell on what I deserve because of who I am and what I have done. And we dwell on the injustice of not having received what I deserve for who I am or what I have done, or at least as I see it myself. Living with this occupation is such bondage and misery. Am I right? Bondage and misery. All was my eyes on myself. All was my occupation with myself and what I deserve and what I'm not getting that I think I deserve. But in the presence of God's glory and under the shadow of his love, you can forget yourself. That's freeing. I no longer have to worry about my justification. Never mind my justification with God. My justification for other people. Are people recognizing me for my true worth or what I think is my true worth? Forget it. You're in God's love. He has saved you. Remember humbling. He has saved you by his grace. You've received what you don't deserve, which is infinitely more than what you think you do deserve. Your eyes are off yourself. It's like being in a great museum. Been in a great museum and seen those, those masterpieces. And you look over and there's, there's someone flipping through her Instagram. And you go, it's Rembrandt. You got a Rembrandt on your Instagram? What if you do? This is the thing, right? Or you're at the Grand Canyon. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I've seen pictures of it, and it looks pretty awesome. I figure it must be even more awesome when you stand before it. And you see a kid over here playing games on his tablet. Words fail you the canyon, or there's somebody taking selfies, always selfies, like the focus is me, and, and, and the canyon is just a background to me. We all understand the absurdity of that, and the absurdity and the injustice of that, the injustice that is being done to the glory of the Dutch master, or the Grand Canyon. But these scenes of the child and the Instagram flipper and the selfie taker, these scenes are all us. Our lives are, an un we live our lives as an unbroken succession of selfies while surrounded by God's glory and his grace in the light of the glory of God in Christ, what he has done for you, you recede and he becomes the focus. And our growth in the Christian life can be seen as a process of me receding and him growing to fill my vision. This is growing Christian maturity. God frees us from our silly and fruitless self-obsession to enjoy him and serve him 
What is the chief end of man? Ask yourself that and say, am I really a Presbyterian? What is it? Because you would know the answer, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Are you enjoying God? Are you enjoying him in your soup? Are you enjoying him in your job? Are you enjoying him in your relationships? Are you enjoying him in the forgiveness you extend to others? Are you enjoying him in the forgiveness you receive from others and from him? As we grow in Christ this way, knowing ourselves as beneficiaries of his sovereign grace, his his irresistible grace, his undeserved grace, we become show-offs. But not of ourselves, nothing to see there, but show-offs of God who is in Christ, who is our all in all. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, you take our breath away, more so than taking in the Grand Canyon, taking in mountainscapes, taking in uh, the most wonderful things in your creation and, and, and of human civilization. More, more than these things, Father, your grace, your sovereign grace, your amazing grace in these ways takes our breath away. Though we were dead, you made us alive. Father, we pray that you would bring us in Christ, from grace to grace, from glory to glory, as we grow in our understanding of your glory and your love and lose ourselves in our enjoyment and service to you. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.